Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Eric Wood is a naturopathic doctor based in Florida. He studied at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, as well as Harvard in mind-body medicine. His private practice serves patients of all ages, and using holistic approaches, he treats various conditions from chronic fatigue to cancer. Eric has written several books, including Longevity Secrets, How to Grow Younger at Any Age. Today, we explore the fountain of youth, Eric's journey to becoming a clinician in naturopathy, and his latest project, which aims to expand our understanding of gender and sexuality. It's a pleasure to welcome my friend, Eric Wood, to the show. Hi, Eric. Hello, Fabio. Good to be here. What have we gotten wrong about aging in our society today? If you were to create a recipe to wear people out, age them faster, make them suffer and break down, we basically have. The way our cultural expectations are, what we don't teach people in school, what we're not getting from our, you know, our, our traditional medical supports is we're not learning our operating system. We're not learning how this works, what it needs recognizing subtle cues about it and then what do we do when xyz inevitably starts to falter you know humans are built with an expiration date but most of us don't get anywhere close to what we believe is the biological limit of humanity which is somewhere you know depending on the source you're looking at between 120 and 150 years from the food, to the chemical onslaught, to the pace of life, to the lack of sleep, the stress. And then in, in more recent decades, I was listening to a podcast myself about this recently. It's the isolation and the disconnection and the division and the othering that's having such profound negative consequences on people's health in so many ways. All these things are breaking us down left and right. How do we get around the conditions that have been created in society that prevent us from living our most optimal life? Like so many things in life, Fabio, and I know this will resonate with you and I think a lot of your listeners, begins with mindfulness. What are your priorities? I don't think that many people think really clearly about what are their priorities. We kind of go on autopilot and I think we're all guilty of this on some level at some points at least because it takes taking a step back. It takes time. It takes conscious reflection, introspection, and thinking about what really is important to you. How do you want to spend your energies? And then aligning 
the various facets of your life to support what those things are. And they're going to and should look a little bit different for everyone. But I think where there's one overarching universal is that everyone wants to be well, just not everybody puts in necessarily the effort, has the resources, has the knowledge, has taken the step back to think on it. And, and craft how that is literally going to happen and, and increase their odds. You know, we do it about finances and financial planning. We do it with all kinds of other facets in our life, but we don't really take an inventory frequently enough on, on how do we create a life that supports life rather than breaks it down. I'm really glad you brought up mindfulness because often people think about extending their life or they think about this idea of youth, things like plastic surgery come to mind, or these quick diets, right, that will slim us down. There's this idea in mindfulness about just being in the present moment. And part of that is just accepting us as who we are. How do we reconcile this idea of longevity and accepting who we are as an individual? First of all, it's an excellent question. And what I would come back to is, it's a careful dance between self-love and also self-support. Again, being thoughtful about what, what is really important to you and how does that fit with your goals? If you have aspirations of having a family, having a active, engaging career, having rich and multiple friendships, which by and large have been declining the last 30 years for a lot of people and leading to some of these problems, you want to be able to show up for all these things and have energy and have vitality and have capacity to keep up with your kids. And at the center of that, well, it depends on your health. Again, if you're thinking about what you want in your life, everything is predicated upon having an, a functional, vibrant body. You can't really get away from that. You can't get around it. You know, you love and start where you're at, but then you work just like anything on looking at all the different pieces of your life and, and how are they supporting or how are they hindering you when it comes to your health? Everything from the relationship component to what's the quality of the groceries you're eating? Have you taken a look at what kind of cleaning products you're using? What kind of personal care products you're using? If you're living in an urban area where there's air pollution, have you invested in a good air filter system? A lot of people, unfortunately, are under the guise that if it's on a shelf somewhere, it must be safe. Sadly, that's hardly the case for so many things. 500 to 1,000 chemicals get introduced into the North American marketplace every year, most of which do not have long-term safety studies, many of which we're putting on our skin, breathing, putting on our countertops. And since becoming a dad less than five years ago, it's taken on a whole new level for me because now I'm really responsible completely for another life. You know, any of the people listening that love their kids to pieces or invested in their, their parenting, you want the best for them. That starts with giving back to you and then doing and being able to put in the effort for your family. And that, again, is predicated on health. And part of your goal is educating people. When we think about this idea of longevity, the tagline to your book is how to grow younger at any age. Is it possible to grow younger? The more we're learning, the more science advances, the more we understand the biochemical actualities of what's happening with the aging process. So everything from understanding like telomeres and telomerase enzyme and how that impacts 
your cells ability to renew or whether they become senescent and die off. The importance of understanding processes like glycation, which is driven by poor quality and excess carbohydrates in the diet and how that damages your structures and tissues. And we know this like from the condition of diabetes, where when sugar is really poorly controlled, you'll see people lose their eyesight. They'll lose memory. They can even have to amputate limbs to some extent, because if the damage becomes severe enough, you have major function loss. But guess what? There's low-grade damage happening all the time to all of us. The more we know how these processes are happening, the more we can strategically intervene to try and minimize them. And so that's what this new paradigm of understanding aging is about, is we have a lot of knowledge now and actually understand how a lot of aging works. And so when you know those processes of what's going on, it also means then you often can figure out ways to mitigate them. Simple things, for example, green tea. Drinking green tea has been shown to extend telomere length. Telomere length is correlated with longevity. Having a cup of two or two of organic green tea is not going to break just about anybody's bank, but it's a simple little piece that just adds a little bit in the bucket of doing things to slow and protect, you know, against the aging process. Doing a pantry overhaul, looking at what's in there, what are you consuming? You know, most people, this is kind of a horrifying stab, but most people exceed their carbohydrate need for the day by the end of breakfast. This is not to pick on carbohydrates that they're they're all bad and, and there's not any benefit. But when you're having a lot of empty calories, you know, the, let's just say the stereotypical coffee run in the morning, when you go to pick your favorite coffee shop and you get your syrups added and your, your whipped toppings, and then you add your muffin or your donut or both, you're at 100, 200 plus grams of carbohydrates, most of which are providing you no real nutritional benefit. And it's spurring glycation and glycation shows up, you know, in little ways like advancing wrinkles, sagging skin, diminishing organ function, diminishing memory. It's really nothing mysterious now. It's it's more about being educated and then taking steps to start to offset all these things. And that's really what Longevity Secrets is about. It's about disclosing and trying to share with people in, in layperson's terms how you can literally go about building a stronger, more functional, preserved, healthy, functional body well into your 80s, 90s, and potentially beyond. There are some genetic components to aging, but most of it research is telling us is driven by our actions, good or bad. Before we dive into your book, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit on what telomeres mean, and I believe you use the word glycation. So could you explain what those two things mean? Absolutely. Everybody, I think, will get this analogy. Everyone's had shoes with shoelaces, right? What do you have on the ends of your shoelaces? Shoelace caps. Now, why do we need those caps? What happens if you don't have them? They fray. They fray, just like our cells. And in order for DNA, if you've ever seen the double helix structure, in order for DNA to be able to replicate and replace the old cell that needs re you know, replacing if it can't be repaired, you need intact, not fraying DNA. And telomeres are like those shoelace caps that keep your cell from not being able to replicate or are fraying. So that's how they fit in in that way. Glycation 
anybody who's cooked meat on the stovetop will get this. So when you brown meat, there is a process happening there. In our body, there is glycation happening. And this happens primarily when you have an abundance of sugar pairing with a protein in your body. And remember, proteins are everywhere from your eyes to your muscles to skin. It combines with that protein and it damages it. And if you get enough damage and you can't keep up with the damage, then you lose function, you lose structure. And there's a saying in functional medicine, function follows structure. So if your structure gets damaged, let's say in the case of your kidneys, which again, I'll pick on diabetes in this case, kidneys are sensitive. If there's an excess of sugar going on, a whole bunch of glycation happens. You see in cases of advanced diabetics, a lot of people struggling with kidney issues. And so your point is, Diet will prevent this damage, and it will also ensure that the telomeres are intact. You can have major impacts on slowing down those processes by simply being really mindful about your eating and, and strategizing how you eat. And essentially, you want to make every bite count. You don't just want to be mindlessly eating, you know, and, and that's another thing that I think with the pandemic and again, the isolation that so many forces have been driving over the last couple of decades, people have that happen more because when you're in front of the TV, when you're in front of your phone, you just kind of, you know, you're not even thinking, right? And it's just, you're shoveling in the chips, you're shoveling in the whatever, and, and usually it's carbs. So let's talk about diet then. Obviously, there's just so many different areas that we could discuss this topic from, but could you offer a couple of tips regarding diet that could improve our health? Yes. So while there are degrees of individual variation in needs, I think it's important that we can generally rest on some commonalities that pretty much everyone will do well with. So starting to build your meals out of fibrous, high quality carbohydrates, like a lot of vegetables or low sugar fruits, like berries, having some quality protein. And you can do that, whether you're an omnivore or vegetarian or whatnot, having some high quality fat, fat and protein essentially cue some of the metabolic hormones when you've had enough to eat. So it's really important that we're getting those routinely in our meals when we're consuming, because carbohydrates don't do that. They don't tell us the satiation cues. They don't give us those cues. And so it's really easy to overeat them. I mean, think about it. How many people can sit and eat an entire bag of chips or a whole plate of fries, but nobody is going to drink a whole bottle of olive oil, right? So you, you'll get the cue that you've had plenty well before you would ever do that. That's a simple way of just starting. Try to make your plate colorful because different colors in foods generally have different nutrients in them, phytochemicals, we would call them in plant nutrition terms. Diversity in color, having some quality protein, having some fiber, which will fill you up, having some fat, those things will cue you and generally provide you with a lot of nutrient density. That's a great concept for people to kind of get in their heads of what it simply means is you want nutritionally dense foods. You want every bite to count rather than it just being an empty potato chip where there's very little nutrition in it. Your bite of broccoli or your spoonful of blueberries or your teaspoon of avocado is going to have so many more minerals and vitamins and other things in there that do you good rather than just be a calorie source. What is your thought on eating in moderation? Unpacking that word moderation 
is it's a very relative term. And one person's moderation is somebody else's excess or minimalism. I think it can become a slippery slope. And if you're looking for cues around you, well, a lot of what people are doing is anything but moderate. 66 plus pounds of added sugar a year in the diet is not moderate. You know, when you go back to the 1800s, we're talking about a pound or two a year. You know, there, there's no comparison, right? Plus, simultaneously, most people's activity levels have dropped dramatically since that time. Intuitive eating is a very good place to get to for many people. And with that, there is some degree of flexibility and moderation because we don't want to encourage what we would call orthorexia, where you get fixated on everything in your diet and every bite. And that's a problem too. And you see it in connection with other eating disorders. But moderation, I find is kind of a junk term because for too many people, it's not specific enough and it can be abused, not always consciously, but, you know, pick your favorite thing. And if it's creeping into your diet five, six times a week and whatnot, is that really moderate anymore? You know, and depending on what it is and the portion size, perhaps not. It could be a crutch. I mean, I went to Montreal recently and I needed to have a bagel and I love those bagels. And I also had poutine. <laughs> so, you know, that's the reason why I asked the question, because I think that there are a lot of people out there, not only about, you know, having these treats from time to time, but also culturally, right? Because I mean, you know, my background's Brazilian and every now and then I'll have a craving for a really nice traditional Brazilian meal. And that could be true for other people from other cultures that, you know, they're, they're having something that's traditional that might be really high in carbs or might be really high in fat. I just wanted to offer that as something that could be a challenge for certain people. But here's the thing. This is not about never being able to enjoy your favorite foods from time to time you know, even if they fall on the unhealthy spectrum, quote unquote, right? It's about what is your daily batting average? You know, to use the sports analogy, there's been no hitter in history in baseball that's hit even close to a thousand. So you don't have to be perfect all the time if you're in a pretty good place health-wise to stay well. And that's important for people to realize too. I, I teach holistic nutrition and integrated medicine for a couple of American universities. And there's a concept called the 85-15 rule where if you eat well and kind of as you're supposed to, 85% of the time, 15% of the time doesn't have to be perfect. And generally there won't be enough non-optimal incidences to cause you health decline. What that translates into if you're eating three meals a day for a week is you have three cheat meals. When you think about it, that really means like one every two to three days, which isn't that hard. I don't think that's an unattainable bar for a lot of people that really want to try and be well and support their health and understand its centrality to probably a lot of the successes of their, their life. One writer who I follow, Gretchen Rubin, came out with a book called The Happiness Project. And she spent a year of her life delving into literature, going centuries back in some cases, in trying to determine what supported and encouraged happiness. And the number one overall variable was health status. So when we're talking about trying to improve the quality of our life or happiness, it starts with health. I do have another question around diet and then I'd like to move on. And this is around socioeconomic conditions, right? Because there are certain people that might not have the ability to 
buy or accessibility to be able to buy certain foods that are healthier. Maybe it's cheaper for them to go to McDonald's and buy a hamburger than find a grocery store for a certain fruit or vegetable or whatever. What tips do you have for that scenario? Well, you know, we all have to work within our circumstances and there is no magic solution to all of them, you know, that somebody else can provide. But what I suggest for people is just starting with the basics. And there are quite a lot of things that you can get that are relatively inexpensive that are health supportive. You know, when you're when you're going to a grocery store, you know, if we're taking the McDonald's example and they're getting a happy meal for five bucks. What could you get at the grocery store equivalent for about the same price? You know, you could get some vegetables on sale for that particular week and maybe get a vegetable medley that you make with some broccoli and carrots and cauliflower. If you don't eat meat or it's too expensive, you could get and combine some rice and beans, add some seasonings to it, have a serving of blueberries for dessert pretty healthy overall meal might need a lot extra protein beefing up, but, you know, throw an egg in there not going to break the bank, you know, and there's a lot of nutrition in that meal. So part of it is just, I think, understanding how you can make some simple recipes that kind of meet your overall nutritional needs. doesn't have to be super expensive. Of course, the more you can generally get organic, the better for you for many reasons. But if you can't afford a lot of that, just start with simple concepts of getting in some vegetables and getting in some quality protein and fat and then figure your way out from there. On the flip side, you're going to get so much more nutrition from that than from your not so happy meal. Let's talk about exercise. We live in a society that's by and large sedentary. There are a lot of professions that require us to sit in front of our computers all day. What can you suggest as possible introductions of exercise activities, fitness goals into people's lives on a regular basis? It doesn't have to be super complicated and depending on what your goals are, and where you're at health-wise and what you might be trying to accomplish that can, of course, influence the suggestions. But simply fidgeting at your desk has been shown to have beneficial improvements when it comes to markers of health, diminishing inflammation, helping circulation. That's simple. Anyone can do that where you literally are wobbling your feet, your, your legs, your, you're squeezing your muscles there because part of the the detriment from the sitting of all day long is the stagnation and lack of, of circulation movement, which then impairs oxygen delivery, contributes to fatigue, contributes to lethargy and often mental fatigue as well. And then that's when people reach for the stimulant, right? To keep them going through. So going for a walk on your lunch break, when you get home from work, taking 15 minutes to, you know, maybe do some lunges and squats or bounce on your mini trampoline to get the blood flow going and get your heart rate up. Relatively simple things that most people can do. Get yourself a, a set of exercise bands at home if you don't belong to or don't like or can't afford a gym membership to challenge some of your muscles. With many markers of health, we see preservation of muscle really important in the aging process is, is connected to more positive health outcomes. Again, start simple and then you build from there. Is it possible to catch up on exercise on weekends? 
some of the general dictates around exercise are try and get 150 minutes of activity. Now you could do that on the weekend and you'd probably be deemed a weekend warrior then, but trying to get some more regularity through the week. So you're not going five days without doing anything would be better. Just like, could you survive on eating all your food on the weekend for the week? Yeah, probably. But it's going to stress your body in more ways than one. So trying to get some regular, more paced out activity is generally going to be favorable for a number of reasons. And again, this is about kind of sustainability. What's all in your life that you need to show up for? Um, what do you need to have energy for? And, you know, we know that activity tends to support many, many things when it comes to health. I've mentioned circulation. I've, I've mentioned muscle preservation, hormone production. I mean, the list is so long. Well, I'm about to hit 50 and these are things that I concern myself with, right? And so when we think about muscle atrophy, what can we do that is just very simple to be able to maintain our muscle? So that's where, again, you can do various types of resistance training. It doesn't have to be with conventional weights. Over the last year, I've gotten much more into plyometric workouts where you're using a lot more of just body weight to do various things. And they can be incredibly challenging depending on how you structure them. You can do many of those at home. I mentioned the exercise bands that you can get. You can get a whole set of them for about $50 or so. You can do many, many exercises with those. Simple lunges and squats are still some of the best exercises for the lower body and will challenge all those muscle groups in the legs, which in general are the largest muscles of the body. Everything from planks to various different kinds of abdominal sit-ups and, and other types of exercises will keep the core strong. And that's important because um, essentially it's attaching the, the upper and the lower together there. And those are things that Again, most people can do if you have injuries, again, adapt as needed so that you can do it. If, if you do have access to fitness facilities, then of course, there's all kinds of classes at many of them, a plethora of different machines. Some types of exercise will, will train you both in a resistance way as well as cardiovascularly, like some of those plyometric workouts really get my heart rate going and definitely work the muscles out too. So if you're unfamiliar with exercise, start with something that doesn't scare you and sounds reasonably enjoyable, you know, because it's it's what you're going to do also, you know, regularly. That's important. If you choose something that you hate, even though if it's good for you, you're not going to follow through and then it's not going to really benefit you. Is it possible to do too much exercise that it would actually do the opposite rather than the idea of longevity, that it could be a detriment to that? Absolutely. You can overdo just about anything. If you look at the literature for, for marathon and especially ultra marathon runners, not good. We're not designed to run a massively long distances, you know, from many, many angles. And so when you put your body through that, you better believe and know that it is a stressor. And if you're not taking extra steps to offset those stresses, it will break you down. Exercise when it's in excess and it's too intense will cause what we call free radicals or oxidative stress, and that damages our structure and then that damages our function. So it's about kind of a sweet spot with doing enough, not too little, not too much. I remember in one of my earlier patients, clients a long time ago in practice, she was a, a, a trainer, a fitness trainer. 
And she saw clients all day long, worked out two hours a day, six days a week. And she wasn't yet 35. And she was showing all kinds of signs of perimenopause, hormone decline, exhaustion, adrenal burnout, because she'd been overtraining. If you follow various athletes, overtraining absolutely happens. Being aware of that, watching for the signs of it, having some general guidelines of what might push you into excess training, I think is helpful. You know, there's more personal tracking devices, like I wear a whoop device, there's the aura ring. This can give you feedback and kind of the state of your body and where it's at so that you can assess, you know, is this a day where maybe I can push more? Is this a day where maybe I should rest and rejuvenate more? Having a four-year-old, I've gone through lots of sleep deprivation in the last four years. So it was very much something I would feel out on a day-by-day basis. And I'm like, how much can I really do today? What's going to feel good? What's going to feel just draining? And whether you have kids or other things that disrupt your sleep or not, we all have to gauge that on some level. And and overtraining is is potentially just as dangerous as or more as undertraining. So for my marathon and ultra marathon friends out there, just one question around recovery. This might be an activity that they very much enjoy and they don't want to remove out of their lives. So do you have any suggestions on what they can do from a recovery perspective so that they could still maintain this activity, but not cause that damage? Ideally, have a diverse, supportive, integrative health team around you, you know, because I can just, it's like speaking from a running angle, I can kind of predict some of the issues that will happen for a lot of people. People will get shin splints, they will get tight IT bands, they will need work on the fascia, they will be more at risk of depleting their electrolyte levels, other nutrient needs go up when you're putting that much stress on the system. So being really careful with your supplementation, with how you're eating, how much rest you're getting and time downtime is important too to recharge the batteries. That's a very simple overview of it, but you need to attend to all those things, your structural physical work, you know, monitoring hormones, I would highly advise for people. I've been following mine since I was 31 and tweaking and tracking and supporting them because most people don't realize that once you hit around 30, they start to fall. You know, again, we're built with an expiration date and there are cycles to life. And if you want to function well and extend your healthy years, which is what everybody really wants, you need to track some things because if you don't measure it, you don't really know. Well, let's talk about that because I think that's a really important point. So there's a section in your book where you do dedicate on hormone and energy levels, weight gain and wrinkles. What do we need to watch out for? I think everyone should do a hormone check by the time you're in your mid thirties, if not before and assess baseline and see where you're at from kind of a functional integrative standpoint, because reference ranges on labs are usually age dependent for a lot of things. And so a lot of people don't realize that if they go and get their labs checked at 50 or whatever, and you're normal, that doesn't mean you're optimal. Hormone levels, generally you're optimal from about 18 to 30, and then they start to fall. And then the numbers are age adjusted on your reports. So checking them when you're, you know, still kind of coming out of your biological prime, and then using that as your baseline to measure you against as you then age really should be how we are tracking this. 
And so if you're able to check the sooner, the younger you are to get a baseline of these and then follow it, you know, do a yearly check. And when you start seeing those numbers falling, consider ways to support them, you know, and there are a multitude of them from herbs, you know, and, and hormones mean more than just testosterone and estrogen. I want to clarify that a lot of people know those, but they don't necessarily know progesterone and DHEA and pregnenolone and some of these other ones, which are also important because there's feedback loops. There's feedback loops between the brainstem, the thyroid, the adrenals, the testes and ovaries, and they communicate. So oftentimes when you start to see deficits in one, you may actually see deficits in other and you need to support the whole. And, and we don't tend to do that. But with herbs, with diet, with changes in your lifestyle, and then possibly bioidentical hormones when it's appropriate for people can be very, very helpful because hormones are powerful chemical messengers. They send signaling for cell division, cell repair, cell renewal, program cell death. And when the messages keep getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Well, the cells accordingly react less and less and less and less because the message is getting de-amplified when your levels are dropping. So supporting them, keeping them at more youthful ranges then supports more youthful function so that you're not the average 60 year old with low hormone levels and fatigue and weight gain around the middle and, and all these other things that we see is almost inevitable, but they don't have to be if you can intervene and be aware and adjust accordingly along the way. And how naturopathic doctors treat hormone deficiency versus a conventional doctor would be different. I don't want to get into what is better and what is not. If you could speak a little bit more about what a naturopathic doctor would do in this case. So it would come back to looking at the whole. So what's going on in that whole person's life? You would do an overview of what are their sleep habits? How are they eating? What are their stress levels? What are they doing to contain or address the stress? Where are they in the life cycle? How does that kind of match up with what we would typically expect to see with hormones? And then we support and intervene accordingly. So for some people, they're going to be guilty of being night owls, going to bed at 2 a.m. all the time. And over time, that depletes you. So working on bedtime and getting enough rest, most people are not getting enough sleep nowadays. So that will age you faster and break you down sooner. So that's a simple place to start looking at the diet. Are you kind of checking all the key boxes there? But then more specifically with intervening with hormones, look at that, what we call HPA access, you know, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal access, all the connections between the hormones. There's many ways we can nourish it from a diet standpoint, Chinese medicine, herbs, and then potentially as appropriate bioidentical hormones. Let's talk about sleep and stress management. What can we do differently to manage our sleep habits and also manage our stress? Starting place is making sleep a priority. You know, I actually remember hearing when I was an undergraduate that if your GPA was higher than the number of hours of sleep you were getting a night, you were succeeding. I mean, we're in a culture that devalues sleep. It's so foolhardy because we don't really understand just how many things are dependent on getting enough rest. So making it a priority, having regular bedtimes, more or less regular wake times and tracking it if you have sleep problems to kind of see what's going on. 
you know, generally research is, is highly concordant in that people need more than seven to nine hours a night routinely. A lot of people are not getting that. So that that is something if you have sleep problems, figuring out them, addressing them, building a team to help you if needed. But there are some simple hacks that for some people will be enough to help them. So having an Epsom salt bath, magnesium relaxes the nervous system, helps to get you in a mode more receptive to sleeping. Having a cup of tea that has an herb that is calming to the nervous system like chamomile. Turning off your devices and not being on your phone or your computer 10 minutes before bedtime, you know, those blue light, you know, are are very disruptive to the circadian rhythm because essentially it's tricking your brain into thinking that the sun is still out. So, and, you know, until the advent of modern lighting, the only lights we had were, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars and a fire. So we're still with that operating system. So being mindful about that, if you're going to be on it, um, wearing blue blockers, or there are some programs that can take out some of those hues that keep you awake um, more readily. If you're struggling with waking up during the night, there's many herbs, there's amino acids you can use to calm the nervous system down. Being honest with where your sleep is at and working on it accordingly is a good place to start. Stress it's unrealistic to think that we're not going to have stress and we don't thankfully need to have a life stress-free. There are good stresses. There are stresses that help gear us up, that push us, you know, to achieve our goals and other things. There are, I think, things that we can try and minimize in our life simply by being mindful. And then knowing some of the techniques that help us deal with it better is also really useful. So there's a book out there called Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Now it's oriented more towards women, but I think it really, there's a lot of it that applies to anybody who deals with stress and has faced or thought at times they may be approaching burnout, which in the last three years is way more people than we've seen probably in a long, long time. In there, they discuss, for example, just how important it is to get exercise, not for all the conventional reasons we know, but actually for flushing out all the stress hormones that if you don't clear them, they literally become, let's call it stress debris in the body. And over time, they degrade you all what we call the catecholamines, the stress hormones, adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol, you know, building that in with regularity, um, you know, especially during the week, because most people have some work stress and, and life balance stress during the week. Deep breathing exercises, a lot of what we would call mind-body techniques. So that's what I did when I went to the Benson Henry Institute at Mass General and Harvard, is they they have a very renowned program there talking about the research and, and techniques to, to use for this. And, and none of these are particularly hard. You can start with deep breathing, you can do yoga, meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong from kind of more Asian traditions to bring the nervous system out of the fight or flight mode because too many of us are are spending too much of our days in that mode and that wears us out. So being oscillating between fight or flight and then we call rest and digest or parasympathetic mode is really important for the nervous system to be able to reset and to not get depleted too quickly. When you talk about aging pyramids in your book, what Mm. does that mean? So in Longevity Secrets, I've kind of structured the book to be a how-to on different levels. Level one is kind of attending to what I would call baseline foundations. So sleep, diet, activity, stress management, 
things like that. You can't build a house without a foundation. And that's really the analogy that we're using. You can't go to the top end if your basement foundation is crumbling because you won't get the benefits from it. You have to attend to these basic things. After you've got a good handle on those, then you start going up into more refined things. So maybe looking at hormone supports, you know, we like we were talking about looking more at detoxification and assessing for that, the mechanisms of aging, like we were discussing before, you know, going after getting a better handle on glycation and oxidative stress and supporting telomeres, that kind of thing. So you attend to more and get more refined in your interventions and habits as you've got a better handle on the base levels in your pyramid, so to speak. If I were to implement all of these strategies, how far back can I turn back the clock in terms of my aging? Well, there are more and more tests out there that can actually measure markers associated with aging. Depending on if you want to spend the money and and put in the investments and see what you can accomplish, you can absolutely improve these markers over time. What I stress for people that we really want to focus on is not chronological age, which none of us can change. It's biological age. And that's the real important one is how is this functioning? And how is that matching up with our chronological age? And so what I would encourage people to do is intervene in all these ways. And then kind of, if you have the the ability to do so, you can periodically test that bioage and compare it to where you are chronologically. And you can actually see if you're doing a good job, a growing disparity between chrono age and bioage moving slower. All of a sudden you're 60, but biologically you're still 47. And by the time you're 68, you're only 53. And in the next 20 years too, there's a lot of stuff coming with biotechnology and things. So I had my stem cells banked this winter in speculation of more technologies being approved where they're going to be, you're going to be able to use your own stem cells for repairing tissues and things that need help, you know, because inevitably we'll all have an injury. We'll all have something happen that we would like to get better and surgery doesn't fix everything. So regenerative medicine techniques and a lot of the cutting edge research here is really going to change the landscape of what's possible moving forward. So I encourage people to really take care of themselves now, because if you can make it in relatively good health over the next 20 years, there's going to be a whole new window of things that start to become accessible to more people that you could utilize to do more advanced aging repair, let's call it. I didn't even know that you could bank your stem cells. That's new to me. I'm not certain what the regulations are in Canada, but in the US, you absolutely can bank your own cells. They are your property and save them essentially for what is believed to be future approval coming from the FDA of more stem cell therapies to treat miscellaneous things. So you studied music in Australia, the U.S. and Canada. How does a musician become a naturopathic doctor? For me, it was kind of about staying true to what I wanted to do and be in the world. I have a lot of artists and musicians in my family come from a lot of educators and performers in my family. And 
I've seen the many trials and tribulations of that. And so when I was studying music in graduate school, like with many things, part of learning is also learning what you don't want to do or don't want to be. And I didn't want to become an academic musician, you know, just get my PhD and and kind of be stuck in because I saw too much of what was happening and I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't want my professor's life. Yet I also didn't want to just be in the precarious place of, of a starving artist because there's so many things that are out of your control when you're in that life. And I'd seen it firsthand with, with having family members and whatnot in that. So for me, it was about doing something that accomplished some of the same things that art was about, which was about bringing beauty and more awareness and illumination into the world. And a lot of the artists and music that I was drawn to were were kind of radical in a sense that they were pushing people to think differently, pushing people to see things differently, reconsider things. I had had some family members with some medical stuff that had been blatantly kind of apparent just what was not happening in medicine and in the care that was not being provided and, and the solutions that were not being offered. And I had done very well in kind of some of the biology and anthropology and, and, and science studies that I'd done. And so for me, it was really just about engaging with that continual goal in a different fashion, yet was meeting some of the same, let's call them uh, soul hungers that Byron Katie talks about, that music was meeting. And, and, and since that point, I'm doing music as, as well as kind of my health stuff in, in my life and, and both are active. So, But what was the spark for you to say, I'm going to study naturopathy, I'm going to become a naturopathic doctor? Um, it, it wasn't just one event, but it was, it was all those things that I had just mentioned. I'd also had a experience with a company in Canada that had approached me because I had written uh, a song and submitted it into almost like an online forum contest. And they had contacted a number of people, including ironically, my cousin, who also is a musician in the US, and essentially wanting to profile us in a new artist showcase. And to make a long story short, it was sort of the unfortunate quintessential music business shark taking advantage of people and not falling through with their promises and stealing their money. And it just underscored for me, like, I don't want to put so many of my eggs in the basket of an industry that can be so ruthless and deceptive at times, and so hard to control the outcome with. So it, it was all those reasons. How do you involve music in your life today? So today I have off and on for about the last four or five years sung with a small opera company in South Florida and have had a tradition, a terrific opera coach and, and teacher through them, old school Italian uh, guy approaching 90. He's been terrific. And in more recent times, I've also gotten involved with essentially headlining a Queen revival group. And, and singing with them and, and possible other things for the future. I do have as a goal to start producing some of my own electronic music in the future as well, kind of drawing on influences and classical training as well as many other artists. So they're more passion projects that 
you know, I don't depend on to pay the bills, but very much engage some key aspects of kind of my spirit and enjoyment in that respect. So you're working on a new project to help broaden our understanding of gender and sexuality from a scientific perspective. What can you share with us about that? It's not just about gender and sexuality. It's really, I think it's much broader than that. It's about othering. You know, we're in a world where it seems that somehow there's always a way to marginalize or other somebody. You know, women are fighting for basic biological and reproductive rights in many parts of the globe still. And we're seeing backsliding on some of these issues. You know, men as a whole, and there's a lot of research supporting this, are in a broader identity dissolution because the world has changed so much in the last 50 years with gender roles and expectations that a lot of men don't really understand how they fit into the world. And we're seeing things like lack in educational achievement, lack of intimate friendships, poor health outcomes disproportionately affecting many subgroups of men. The LGBTQ community, especially those who identify as trans, are continually the recipients of a lot of vitriol and hatred and judgment and injustice because people want a scapegoat. People want to not open their minds and consider that we are more of a diverse spectrum than perhaps we've ever allowed ourselves to think about. Epigenetics, genetic testing, gender studies, all of these in different ways are pushing us, are really urging us to pay attention, to, to look at what actually is there, showing that we are a microcosm of difference, and yet we have so many common shared features and, and attributes. So why are we othering everyone left and right and descending into tribalism and division and all of these things that contributes to loneliness and isolation? And you know what? Loneliness and isolation are more powerful predictors of negative health outcomes than even your diet and your activity levels. So when we come back to health and the importance of addressing these things, it is paramount because when we're feeling like this, there's so many negative consequences that come out of it. Socially, culturally, health-wise, one can argue in the political sphere, environmentally. So it's, a, I think, a really important pressing issue for us to really look at more carefully. It's an important message to share, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the book. What does resilience mean to you? Well, I think resilience is something that a lot of people have become more intimately connected to in the last few years because it's been such a hard time in the world for a lot of us. And we've been forced to, whether we wanted it or not, to have to try and dig deep and find ways to cultivate this. I think for me, what's really important to remember is resilience is something that can be taught and it can be worked on. And for a long time, I've thought, why aren't we teaching this to kids in school? You know, it, it should be because inevitably life will throw you some difficulties you cannot control. And what are you going to do and how are you going to respond? So I think staying connected to your missions, your passions the people that you hold dear to, you know, really, when you look at it, like the reasons why you want to get up and stay, you know, on this planet and continue to be is really important to connect to because it gives you motivation and inspiration to persist and, and, and more than just persist, continue the struggle, you know, 
Amanda Gorman, the, the wonderful poet, spoke so eloquently at Biden's inauguration in talking about continuing to do the work despite all the challenges and put some really wonderful words to illustrate like the work is never done, but when you're tired, you can take a time out, you can withdraw to your safe community, to your family, recharge the batteries, and then rise again and continue to pursue your passions, continue to pursue your vocations, your relationships, your everything again that you hold dear in your life. That's really what resilience means to me. It, it, it's being able to come back again and again. And nobody's saying that you can't take a time out to recharge those batteries or to heal from a wound, but it is meaning that you don't give up and you don't give up on the process of continuing to become and become all that you are capable of. What is your practice of resilience? It's really about having boundaries in my life so that I'm not too overextended. And I felt a lot of that through the pandemic because having a infant and then toddler and then working and then the social isolation and not being able to travel. And, you know, I think so many of us felt like we were continually being more and more boxed in and our ways of coping, our ways of supporting were continually being reduced. I made a very conscious effort for the better part of four years to not set the bar too high on trying to move too many things or new projects, because I knew that it just simply wasn't going to be sustainable given how much I already had on my shoulders. So I think being really honest with yourself and your situation and how much you can handle trying to set up as much support structures as you can. You know, I have a whole diverse team of healthcare providers I work with personally to support me from structural people, which has been really important to hormonal support, acupuncture, TCM support. So I think everybody building a team to sustain you is important. Carving out personal time to not necessarily have to do anything, but just to be. You know, whether it's meditation time, I do saunas and in those saunas, I, I very often visualize and, and meditate during that time for many reasons. Having self-care time, having boundaries on how much you give and having ends to your day, I think is important in a, in a society, again, that tends to encourage workaholism, which I've definitely been guilty of in the past is really important for sustaining um, because you won't be able to continue to burn the candle at both ends forever without significant consequences. And I've had some of those happen kind of reckoning moments, I would say, where if you push too hard, the body will tell you and will show you sometimes violently that you've got to stop and you've got to do things differently in one way or another. How do these practices of resilience benefit you? They recharge my spirit and my energy so that I'm able to, again, continue in a, in a very simple way. I think, again, having gone through pronounced sleep deprivation, and, and you know, most parents will know this, uh, or parents sometimes of fur children as well will know this, that if you, if you are really depleted, you're simply not getting enough rest it makes everything harder. You know, one of the things I noticed that I hadn't really thought about in such terms before, but when I was chronically sleep deprived, I'd get maybe a couple nights of better sleep and then I would get a worse night. My body would physically hurt a lot more. What is that about? So I did a little research. Well, guess what? When you're not getting enough rest, your perception of pain increases substantially. Again, self-care 
can really facilitate so much if you're aware and putting it into practice. Because when you hurt, when you're tired, when your kind of bandwidth is low, you don't have as much capacity to do as much as, as perhaps the spirit might like. So the more you're able to fill your tank, giving to you ultimately is going to help other people because then you have something to give to them. How can people contact you? So they can go to my website, drericwoodnd.com. So if anyone who wants to buy your books, where can they go? Longevity Secrets is published by Primal Labs in Texas. So they have a devoted page to it. The new book coming out about detoxification, immunity, cancer is going to be published by Tonic Books online. The last book I can't yet disclose because I'm in discussions, but stay tuned and hopefully I will have an answer for that soon. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you coming on my show and sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio Da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of Transformative Stories and Beneficial Practices to Guide You on Your Wellness Journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience.